morning, everyone. Sound sounds good. We're launched. This morning, we're doing a section in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to be preaching through 1 Corinthians for the foreseeable future. <clears throat> Excuse me. Today, we're on eschatology, or more specifically, eschatological hope. Now, eschatology is a study of the end times, and eschatological means that which pertains to the end times. Let me read the text. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. God will get us to the end. Now let's look at verse 7. Now this is important in the bigger context of 1 Corinthians for the following reason. One of the problems, and we'll talk about this as we go through 1 Corinthians, was what's called over-realized eschatology. And what does that mean? It means we're expecting things to be a certain way now that will only be that way until the end when Christ returns. And when you try to take the millennial hope or anything like it and put it into the now, you get a lot of confusion and a lot of trouble and a lot of bad things. So let me read this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 7 from the New American Standard Bible. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we learned earlier in chapter 1 and verse 5 that Paul said you were enriched in him. He said in verse 4, grace was given. The grace of God was given. So we were enriched. Uh, they're told that. We were given grace. God was at work. Verse 6, the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. I preached on that last week. And so we have what we need for the age we're living in. The problem is when people try to push everything into the now and forget about eschatology. And one way that happens is through post-millennialism, meaning we're going to create the millennium on the earth, and then when we take control and we straighten everything out and we get it the way it's supposed to be, then Christ will return. Now, that belief has been uh, part of American history, for sure, and it's false. It's part of the reason for all the confusion. The millennium is not coming on the earth. It's not coming to America. Uh, Israel is the center of Bible prophecy, not America. And the millennium comes when Christ, after the tribulation, which is a seven-year period, Christ returns and rules. And so what we have in the meantime between the day of Pentecost and the rapture is everything we need. 
We're not lacking anything. We have what we need. God gave us what we need. And so this demand that it all happened right now, or if there's any problem, somebody did something wrong, is, is really harmful. It takes away our comfort. It harms families. It harms churches. It ha- harms everybody. When you're looking for something now, that won't happen until then. The idea that you can have the kingdom of God on earth without Christ here is a lie. I've written about it, I've debated about it, contended for that, but there are people who still think that we can have the kingdom of God in America without Christ. It's a lie. I'll say it's a lie boldly. It won't happen. So awaiting. See, we're awaiting. Don't let somebody say, well, you fools, what are you waiting for? You're supposed to take charge and do it now. Well, what are we awaiting? Well, that word awaiting, eagerly, the Greek word is used eight times in the New Testament, three of which are in Romans 8, verses 19, 23, and 25, if you want to jot that down. Romans 8, 19, 23, and 25. It concerns the future when the sons of God are revealed when Christians are glorified with him. And it says in Romans 8, 17, children, heirs, we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Christ returns. The saints are are resurrected. We're changed. And when we rule with Christ on the earth, it's in glorified bodies, not now. It's awaiting. And this revelation, apocalypsis, where we get our word apocalypse, is applied in 2 Thessalonians 1 7 to the second advent. Let me quote that. If you want to jot it down, I'll, I'll read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 1 7. To give relief to you who are afflicted into us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's future. That's not now, that's future. Have you seen the mighty angels with flaming fire? Oh, I haven't. I know some people think they did. But they're uh, probably, something's not going so well for them. But remember the disciples wanted that? They didn't like being mocked. They didn't like trouble. They didn't like people disrespecting them. And they said, well, call down the angels. Why put up with this? That wasn't, that's for future. Right now is the time of the church in which the gospel preached and people are saved. And as I mentioned a little earlier, the Corinthian problem has been described as over-realized eschatology. They didn't want to wait. Paul will later say, don't you know that you will judge angels? There's going to be a different order when Christ comes and he's on the earth and he sets up his millennial kingdom and then there's also the eternal order. But people don't want to wait so they create these cults, these eschatological cults, these false teachings because they don't want to take the whole counsel of God 
for what's taught in the Bible. Now, if you want to know what the future does bring, there was a preview, jot this down, Luke 9, 28-32, and then there's parallel passages. It's the transfiguration. Christ came, humble servant, suffering servant, who was crucified and shed his blood for the remission of sins, raised on the third day, bodily ascended to heaven, and he raised at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1, and awaiting that future time when he'll return. That time is unknown. The transfiguration was a preview for three witnesses, Peter, John, and James. The Bible is written so that we would believe what's said. Jesus will be glorified, and he will come back and defeat his enemies. But it was hard for them to understand. Some of them wanted to call down the fire. Let's look at the promises, though. As I keep saying, believe the promises of God. Verse 8. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone... uh, email me and say, well, you keep talking about the promises. Could you, do you have a document somewhere that has all of them that you could send me? Well, they're in the Bible, and it would take a lot of work, and I'd probably miss some. The promises of God are throughout the Scripture, but I'll bring it up when when there is one. Here's one right here. That God will confirm you, believers, to the end, telos in the Greek, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. That's the promise of God. Would it be important to believe that promise, live by that promise, and know that in the day of the Lord will be blameless, meaning um, not found guilty in a court of law? Why? Because we're sinless? No, because our sins are forgiven washed away by the blood of Jesus. The righteous one who did no evil, the sinless one died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. We'll be blameless in the day because we believe and trust in him, not in ourselves. That's the promise of God. He will confirm you. That same word confirmed from the Greek was used in verse 6, which I preached on before. There, it says that you were confirmed, that is, in your faith, in the gospel, at the point of conversion. This is a future promise. So here it went from the aorist, point in time, conversion, to future, will be confirmed. So there's an already and a not yet. God is the one who did confirm them through the gospel and will confirm all of us in the end. This needs to be preached more. Honestly, I think a lot of our anxiety and fear and restlessness and lack of peace and 
so all the things that happen because we're so oriented to now. We don't like what's going on in the world now. And somebody did something wrong, let's fix it. But we can't because we live in a sinful world. God gives us civil government to restrain evil, and they do a fair job sometimes, a horrible job other times, and hardly any job at all sometimes. But as, if you listen to the, some of the teachings we've done on a divine council worldview, if you look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, as bad as it seems, we're better under sinful humans than directly under the demons. I know people don't believe that, but it's true. And for those that don't believe it and don't trust in Christ, they'll find out during the tribulation what it's like to be directly under the demons. Okay? And you can read Revelation to get a preview, but it's not a pretty picture. So that's why the Bible says, pay your taxes. God draws out the boundaries of the nations. I'll explain that in Acts 17 in Sunday school soon. And pray for civil leaders. They're rarely good. Caesar wasn't good. Lots of different Caesars weren't good. But what Paul demanded was a chance to preach the gospel so people can get out of the kingdom of darkness and be translated into the kingdom of his beloved son for whom we eagerly await, knowing that we'll be found blameless in the day of the Lord. Hallelujah. Guiltless. How can it be? How can a sinner ever be declared guiltless? This is a message that God's given us. The church that believes the Bible, any church that believes the Bible, any people that believe the Bible, have that message. Nobody else does. They're saying you got to get what you can now. If you don't, that's really bad. Blow it all up. We're saying... Flee to the Savior. Trust in his shed blood once for all. It was shed once for all. And be found blameless in the day of the Lord. The word blameless means free from any legal charge. According to Playwordside Dictionary in the New Testament. And I did a, a search on that Greek word. And that's a good translation. The day of the Lord is the eschatological or end times day which is a complex event. Eric has taught on that. Because the rapture, great tribulation, the return of Christ with the church, the millennial reign, and then from there, there's even more. But we're concerned about the church age and our faith and our hope that we be blameless in the day of the Lord. And God will confirm us to the end. Do you believe that you're good enough to make it? No. Do you believe that he can keep you? Yes. Are you trusting yourself or are you trusting Christ? Christ. I'm going for Christ. I've already proven many times I can fail very badly. But Christ is the perfect Savior who will never leave us. And never forsake us. He keeps his promises. Trust in Christ. Now, I have a slide here to summarize the tenses of grace. That's what I call it. The tenses of grace. 
past, present, future. I'm glad that our uh, fellowship is called Gospel Grace Fellowship because we want to accentuate the grace of God, not human ability. Past. Given saving grace at conversion. And I've preached on this. 1 Corinthians 1.4. This all right here from our section. Present. Supplied with all needed gracious gifts. 1 Corinthians 1.7. Future. Kept blameless in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.8. Let me just cite verse 4. Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Jesus Christ. Now that church had a lot of problems. We'll see that as we go through 1 Corinthians. But Paul thanked God for them. Remember, he spent a year and a half in Corinth, personally teaching, working with them. He knew God had given them grace. They got really confused. They got really off track. But he knew God had given them grace. So he continued to write and to teach them to get back on track. Let's go to verse 9. The last verse in the section we're covering today. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I switched to the ESV because the Greek is more clearly brought out in this particular translation. The fellowship of his son there is rather literal. It may be kind of clunky if we want to call it that in English, but I wanted to bring out the literal Greek here. I'm not saying the other translations are wrong. That's what it says. But first, let's look at the first three words. God is faithful. Well, that's said a lot in the Bible. Why? Because our hope, our faith, and our present well-being is grounded in the faithfulness of God. Not in our IQ, our motivational prowess, our cleverness, or anything else. It's grounded in the faithfulness of God who can change dead sinners into sons and daughters of his, give us great and precious promises and keep us and use us and work through us and keep us blameless so that we're blameless in the end, ultimately, when Christ returns. We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper today. What did he say there? This is the new covenant in my blood. Um, that's the fellowship we have. Let's look at that phrase there, the fellowship of his son. The fellowship, koinonia, sometimes you hear that word uh, transliterated into English, so most people have heard it. Koinonia, fellowship, can mean a lot of things. In the original Greek, it could mean a gathering of people in a city that have common interests. But what does it mean here? That's what's important. It's not wrong to gather with fellow citizens wherever you are. I was, I, I coached baseball, uh, volunteer youth baseball in St. Louis Park for 10 years 
and most of the time I was going to seminary. I'm glad I did that. It's something I did with my son. But that's not the fellowship it's talking about here. That was community service and so on. The fellowship here is unique in that it's the fellowship of his son. Let me make a statement about that. Into the fellowship of his son means fellowship with Christ and one another. This is both positional and relational. This means a common relationship with Christ. That's positional. We're in Christ. Not merely common interests. The term fellowship, I'm continuing my statement, in church context, especially in the seeker movement, often turns into merely common interests. And that is a travesty. Because Paul is not talking about the fellowship of the world or the fellowship of religious consumers or the fellowship of people who uh, would like to learn the secret to whatever or want to find their purpose or want to have more riches. It's the fellowship of his son. What makes us one, not our age, not our ethnicity, not our background, but the fact that we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the fellowship of the Son. And the unity that we have in that doesn't matter. These other things just kind of become not so important. It's unbelievable when I was converted, the people that gladly accepted me. It's amazing. Because the day before, I had absolutely nothing in common. Nothing. But in Christ, we had everything in common. What about you? So a lot of the, back to my statement, these common interests that are used in order to make churches big, it doesn't matter how big we are, it's whether we know the sun. Okay? Often having nothing to do with the blood atonement, forgiveness of sins, and our eternal promises in Christ. Not at all. That's sad. That we have the real fellowship, the fellowship of his son, is why the world hates us. Do you want another promise of God? John 15, 19. Jot this one down. I'll just read it to you. We have to make sure we are prompt today. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, Jesus said, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So why go on a program That's the whole bizarre uh, foolishness of the seeker movement. You go to the seminars and read books and you listen to the experts to get the world to not hate you. They'll love, they'll want to come. They won't hate us anymore. But the only way to do it is to reject Christ or to hide Christ or don't admit what you really believe. What did Jesus say? Because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. You can't. Can you change that? you got to go in prayer and say, Jesus, unelect me. 
Well, that's, people do this called apostasy. You read about that in Hebrews. No, no, no. We don't want to get rid of that, and we can't change it. So why don't we just realize it's the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fellowship of one another is grounded in the blood atonement. What God has done for us, not what we did for him. We don't want to change it. We would welcome and really Jesus, uh, Jesus calls all people to himself. The external call, but those that hear the internal call, come. Paul actually said, we beg you, be reconciled to God. We're not exclusive, but we're calling people into the fellowship of his son, and that's through the gospel. So it's really a waste of time to go to these programs and try to figure out how to make what the world hates uh, something the world loves. It'll never change. John 15, 19. A couple of uh, implications and applications. Number one, we must avoid over-realized eschatology. Number two, our hope is grounded in the faithfulness of God who called and redeemed us. That hope is for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Do you believe God is faithful? I do. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. What I'm going to do often as I preach through 1 Corinthians is do a lot of previews and eventually reviews. The reason is that 1 Corinthians is often considered difficult and sometimes misinterpreted by taking ironic statements and literally, which gives you the opposite of what's actually said. And so I'll keep giving you these previews so as we go along, this book will become clear and we'll understand Paul's meaning. But this comes from, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 4, 5. It comes as an implication that he'll bring out later about uh, the fact that we will be preserved blameless. There will be a future day when the Lord comes. He'll straighten out things that we can't straighten out now. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, Paul says, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Wow, there's a lot there. When I get to this verse... I'll unpack it even more by God's grace. But right now I want to make a few points that have to do with our eternal hope. We want to judge too often. We want to judge each other now. Who's better? Who's more talented? Who does their job better? Who bugs us? Who doesn't bug us? Uh, Who's nice? Who's not nice? This one's got tons of gifts. There's the holy man of God. There's the pious one. Here's the other one. Oh, they're not very good. They got problems. And Paul says, stop it. Because they had super saints and the pneumatikoi, the hyper-spiritual ones, the ones who claimed to be the super apostles were better than even Paul. The others that looked down on others. We'll get to all of that. But Paul is saying, don't do this. Do not go on passing judgment 
before the time. It's not our business to judge each other on things that are not clearly even known. What's not known? How about uh, the motives of man's heart? Who knows the motives of the heart? God? Is that correct? Is that correct? Does God know the heart? The Bible calls him the heart knower. What does Jeremiah say about the heart? It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? So how can I say I know the motives of somebody else's heart when I can't know that anyhow? And when we get in our, put ourselves in a place of judgment, the sin nature tends to make us judge thusly. I have pure motives. Everybody else has bad ones. Doesn't that seem on the surface to be kind of hard to believe? Isn't it true that if, but by the grace of God, we have we wouldn't have any good motives? But God has given us grace. It's not hopeless. Just wait. May God help me and all of us to grow in his grace and knowledge and love Christ and encourage one another, one another, appreciate one another, and then wait. Wait until the Lord comes. If this is something I can't know, I'll have to wait till the Lord comes because I can't know. We do not have the knowledge, wisdom, or authority to judge such things. Things hidden in darkness, motives of hearts. Who's a better Christian than the other one? Who's more pious? Who's more important? This will come up later, 1 Corinthians 12. Shall the uh, head say to the hand or the eye, to the foot or whatever, I don't need you. I've got what I need. I'm multi-talented. Well, we don't know that. How about humbly serve? If God can use us at all, it's a miracle. It really is. Because we were dead sinners. Ephesians 2.1. We need to serve by God's grace, as I have on the slide now, and not make impertinent judgments. We don't have the ability to judge the value of one Christian's service and gifts versus another. I have one more statement to make. We are not lacking gifts. That was Paul's point. You have what you need for the church age. We're not lacking gifts, but we're often lacking humility. We're not lacking gifts, but it's so easy to just lack humility. We all need one another. In church history, some people tried to have greater piety by taking things way too extreme and taking things out of context. Jesus said the least will be the greatest. So people thought, good, I want to be the greatest, so I'll be the least. So I joined a monastery, take an oath of poverty, an oath of silence, whatever. I'll, I'll, have somebody, I'll pay somebody to beat me. See, Jesus, I'm the least, so give me honor. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Philippians 1, 5 through 6. Philippians 1, 5 through 6. I have a slide for that. Context, Paul thanks God for your fellowship in the gospel. Now, remember, this was a troubled church, the Corinthian church. A lot of sorrows, a lot of problems, a lot of false judgments. A lot of rejection. 
sects, schisms. We'll talk about that some when I preach next in Corinthians. But Paul didn't give up on them because there was the fellowship of the gospel, and he had been there for a year and a half teaching. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. Now, this is in Philippi, by the way, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me ask a question. What made Paul confident that he'd complete the work in in that particular church? Philippian one, certainly the Corinthian one, got the same promise. Was it that they looked like they're going to make it? Or because God keeps his promises? It's the latter. Because God keeps his promises. He who began the good work in you, each of you who know Christ, he promises to complete it. Complete means to bring it to the end that God has. Um, Redeemed free, and in Christ. Believers have true fellowship with God and one another. And the day of Jesus Christ is the same day that Paul was speaking about 1 Corinthians 1, 8, which I've already covered. One more slide. By the way, I, I shortened this a little bit because of the time constraint today, because of the wedding that's going to happen. So, Let's go to First Corinthians. Excuse me, First Thessalonians five twenty four. Want us to contemplate this? God keeps His promises. One Thessalonians five twenty four. Faithful is He who calls you; He will also bring it to pass. Another translation, I think, the King James says, "That's where I first learned it." Faithful is he who calls you, he will also do it. He calls you, he does it. He uses means, means of grace, but it's God who's at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God who will complete your fellowship. God who will bring to pass his promises in your life. God who will bring you all the way to glory safely because he's faithful. In the context... Uh, we have Paul's prayer for their complete sanctification and preservation. Complete sanctification. It's not a higher order experience. It's not for super saints. It's for Christians. As I love to say, there are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. It's a work of grace. So believe the promises of God. We are comforted by God's promises when troubled by our own weaknesses. That statement is my composition. You can judge it, whether it's scriptural or not. I think it is. I certainly believe it's wisdom. We're comforted by God's promises when troubled by our own weaknesses. Does that mean we don't need to change? No, it doesn't mean that. It means there hope, there's hope we will change. And God has means. God will motivate us. God will empower us. God will keep giving us truth from Scripture. And will keep us 
as we grow in him and trust in him. God is faithful, God's promised, and God cannot lie. That's that promise and that truth is revealed throughout scripture. Remember Abraham or Abram? When God promised him a son, a promise, and he halted and faulted and tried his own plan, it didn't work out. But eventually God did work through Abram to bring the child of promise and to carry forward the seed, forward the seed promise and went all the way back to Eve. The final ultimate seed is the son, the promised one. So today as we have the Lord's Supper, I want us to focus on the promises of God, our need for one another, the faithfulness of God, what he's already done for us, and our eternal hope. I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, commence with receiving the Lord's Supper. Thank you, dear Lord, for your mighty deeds that show us that you are faithful, that you have promised, that you do take care of your people, and that you've given us fellowship together by your grace. And Lord, give us strength because we live in troubling times, very difficult times, and the hatred of the world is so obvious Lord, we know that you'll give us grace to persevere and trust you all the way to the end. And as we think about what you've done for us through keeping the ordinance that you've given us, we ask that you would continue to work to change us in Jesus' name.